I also think Christians, white Christians, should be um, involved in the kind of lament or mourning work that is required, I think, to move forward. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Ryan Andrew Newsom. He's assistant professor of theology and ethics at Campbell University. And he's also the author of a brand new book. It just came out June 30th from Baylor University Press, Cut in Stone, Confederate Monuments and Theological Disruption. This is a really timely book. It was already planning to come out. And then suddenly, right before it comes out, we see... Confederate monuments around the country being toppled by protesters, taken down by officials, sometimes defaced with graffiti and other types of art. And so I was really excited to have this conversation with Ryan to, to help us think about these monuments and particularly to think about them theologically. What is the, the message that they're sending and how do we disrupt that theology? How do we present a new message? And so... Uh, really think you'll find this to be an interesting, timely conversation about an important topic that we are wrestling with as a nation right now. So here's my conversation with Ryan Andrew Newson on his book, Cut in Stone, Confederate Monuments and Theological Disruption. Well, first of all, thanks for joining us on the program. That's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get to talk about some of your work, I want to first note we are in this time of coronavirus and a lot of things are, are quite different right now. And how are you doing? Are you staying safe and healthy during this time? <laughs> Trying to. Um, <laughs> it's a weird, you're right, it's a weird time. And um, it's hard to know exactly what to think from day to day. And so I'm doing the best I can. I have two children at home that six and three. And so since, I guess, March, we've been more or less confined with the whole family together, which is, of course, a wonderful blessing, but also has its challenges as well. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I'm doing pretty well considering. I, I mean, I, I truly feel it's weird to, to see all this stuff happening and you feel sort of like you're watching it at home and also just feel so fortunate. I feel fortunate to have, you know, employment and health insurance, and all these things where that's very much in flux for a lot of people. So doing OK, given the circumstances, you know. Well, well, hopefully we can both get through this without an interruption of a kid jumping in, which is one of the unique challenges of working at home right now. So, I, I, went, I went to the office for just that reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you teach at Campbell University in North Carolina. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the school, I wonder if you could just kind of introduce it and maybe tell us a little bit about what you teach there. Sure. 
so yeah, Campbell University, it's in North Carolina. There's a school of a similar name in South Carolina, um, but it's distinct. So Campbell University is a um, historically Baptist school, but now it's uh, more, it's still affiliated with its Baptist heritage, but it's more kind of ecumenically Christian in nature. And so it's a smaller-ish, I mean, you know, 4,300 undergrad students, not including law school and med school and all that, about 40 miles south of Raleigh, which is the capital in the state, if you don't know. And so it's a wonderful place. It's a place where its Christianness, its Christian identity is taken seriously, but in a way that's expansive and inclusive, very much committed to sort of you know, academic inquiry and those sorts of things. So I find it a very unique place. I'm very lucky to be there. I teach theology and ethics. And so my task in this broader university, you know, goal is to teach undergrads theology and ethics, to think about moral issues, ethical issues uh, at the intersection of, of course, uh, theology, Christian theology in particular. And so that's what I do. I, I broadly explore questions at the intersection of uh, Christian theological convictions and uh, how those things sort of touch ground on a variety of moral questions and issues. That's that's kind of what I do. I also uh, coordinate the uh, biomedical humanities program for the undergrad, which uh, has to do with exploring the intersections between health sciences and the humanities more broadly. So and I guess things were probably a little bit different ending your last semester with coronavirus. Were you teaching virtually by the time the semester ended? Yes. So that was a, that was a, that happened off the cuff or, you know, on the fly, obviously. And uh, I was teaching a class, I mean, I teach a variety of classes. And one of them was on the biomedical humanities. And we were talking about epidemiology and the, what is illness? <laughs> and it was great. You know, it was just sort of a, so yes, I ended up, we had to switch right at the, right in the middle and um, do our best to make it, make it work. But we are making it work. Um, it, it ended up okay. And now we're, you know, getting ready for this fall and see if we're going to see what happens with that. Well, you have a new book out from Baylor University Press, and it's incredibly timely. And it is why I'm glad to have you on the program. It's called Cut in Stone, Confederate Monuments and Theological Disruption. So I wonder if you're going to introduce the book. What's your main argument that you're making in this? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's incredibly timely and it's odd for me, I mean, I've been working on this for broadly five years, and I can date that because I remember precisely when I started thinking about it, which was the Mother Emanuel Church shooting, but then intensively for three years. And so it's a very crazy thing to have this coalesce with the release of the book. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. It makes it more, um, it's weird to think about something for so long and for all of a sudden it to be it kind of ebbs and fl- it kind of comes in and out of public, I've noticed, in and out of public consciousness, the debate and the conversation about it. The central argument of the book, the main argument of the book is kind of deceptively simple, which is simply to say that Confederate monuments are theologically weighted in nature. They are something like sacred objects. Uh, I say that not just, that's not a hyperbole. Um, they, they manifest, they uh plug into certain feel, deeply theological ways of seeing the world that continue to have power today. So at their inception, at their um, construction, at their dedication, there's Christian, there's theology, and in fact, Christian theology all over the place on them. And then also in their design, they tap into those things. And so my, 
part of what I wanted to do is, uh, when I first started, was to pay attention to the historical context within which these monuments arose. Some of that history has become more widely known since then from when I began, which is great, although not as widely known as I might like. Um, but it's their, their theological underpinning is, is more the contribution, and that is less talked about and known. So the goal is to describe that, and then because I think that helps understand the power and allure both of the monuments, but more importantly of what they kind of represent, that continue to have kind of power with or without them, statues standing. And so to truly disrupt these monuments and what they represent more importantly is to, it's going to require, you know, I'm a theologian, so a sort of counter theology that at each place they sort of present a theology of uh, uh, remembrance, let's say, or whiteness as ultimate, then it's the task of Christians who are interested in doing faithful Christian talk in public to counter that at precisely the place in which they are theological. That's the central argument of the book. Well, I wonder if you mentioned the idea that the even the design of them is making a theological argument. I wonder if you could give us an example of, of what you mean by that. Oh, um, <laughs> yes. Of course, there's always like inscriptions. So so every once in a while, there's there almost always going to be a, some sort of call to remember or something like that. And so every once in a while, these sort of theological... Um, Christian allure will be just written on there. But yeah, I, I do mean more the design as much or even more importantly. Okay, so the most standard uh, monument you're going to see, the generals get all the um, press. Um, Up on their horses. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's itself deeply um, meaningful. They, they thought a lot about that. You don't see Lee without Traveler very often, his horse. And that was meant to be very symbolic of his power and repose to be able to subdue a powerful yet subservient beast, which is, you know, you know, ripe with symbolism, bad symbolism. Uh, but the most common one you're going to see is the common soldier statue. And the design of this, this great book, Kirk Savage wrote a book called um, Standing Soldiers, Kneeling Slaves. And he shows that the design of these monuments particularly these common soldier statues, which portray just sort of a common soldier, a, a white dude, usually uh, at parade rest with his gun at his side, sometimes looking to the north, you know, was taps into sort of aesthetic uh, uh, senses of what is beautiful and good that uh, very much wanted to sort of equate white uh, whiteness, the white male in particular, with what is most beautiful, most true, most ethically normative, most rational, and closest to God, ultimately. And so there's a sort of, just for instance, then, these common soldier statues are purposely boring in design. They're kind of formulaic in design. They're going to look the same. That's kind of part of the point. They sort of create what Willie Jennings calls a, the white aesthetic regime that, as they accumulate across the country, it does some sort of formative work on people that connects with whiteness as ultimate, whiteness as closest to God. So that's one example of what I'm talking about. So it's very kind of mundane and ordinary in the way it's formative in that way. It doesn't just say, very few just say, this is to white supremacy or whatever. Although one in New Orleans did, uh, um, but very few do. But they work more subtly than that. 
Yeah, and of course you get you know this idea of even the horse, which you know as a theologian, um, I'm sure that you see that in scriptures as well. I mean, we even have Jesus is kind of doing that counter narrative of of riding in on you know a colt instead of the triumphant horse. Yeah, and Brian Zahn, the preacher, talks about how there's always the some dude on a horse somewhere. Everywhere we go in some country, there's this dude on a horse because that's part of that military symbolism that has some very deeply spiritual connotations beyond just political. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so I don't touch as much on this in the book, but also um, masculinity as well. So for a new book coming out of UNC Press, University Press, talks about also at Confederate. They work at multiple levels, right? And it also taps into this like vision of masculinity as well. And, and militarization as well. So like, yeah, it's happened all these sorts of, they kind of coalesce in a way. One of the things we, we've been hearing a lot about in the debate about the monuments is, you know, this idea of, of erasing history. And, and I think what, <laughs> yeah, you heard that, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And so I think one of the things that you're getting at is that these are not just, these aren't just a history. Right. They're, they're, I mean, for one, they're an interpretation of history, but you're going even beyond that, that they're they're making a theological argument. Yes. And so I think that that's that's really helpful to help us think about what is the purpose of a monument in the first place. Yes, that's very well said. Uh, uh, and that is a huge part of the book that I'm interested. I, I mean, <laughs> I just I laugh because, yeah, it comes up very often. I, I don't think most of the time it's it's well thought through. I mean, I, I, you know. Everyone seems to recognize there's a time in which to gather up stones and a time to throw them away. Uh, you know, that's a very hard to hold consistent position that is never the time ever to uh, address a monument. But on another sense, so I don't even think it's in a good faith argument, but I think that's well said. And on another hand, it's just a mis to even answer that question, to take that question at face value assumes that that's what monuments are sort of up to. And that's only a, that is part of it. But it's a very much a small part. Uh, monuments always do their formative work in the present and for a future vision of something. I mean, otherwise, why would you build it? It's not just to learn history. I think there's an important place for learning about the past through public objects. I mean, I don't think it's true that just we can learn our history through the books. I think there's a place for that work to be done. The question in this case is, what is that history and what does that in service do for the future? Not, you know, is it dumb to look at the past through in public through objects. I think that's just happens. So yeah, the question on its fate, it's sort of, I, I most charitably, I can just say it, it doesn't recognize the power in the work that is happening with monuments in general, actually, and then Confederate monuments in particular. Well, we've kind of alluded to this moment that we're in while we're having this conversation, but I wanted to ask you about that a little bit more specifically you know, since you wrote this book and it went into production, and I know that's a long time. And so it means you've been done with all these words, you know, for months now. Yes. Uh, and and then now it drops. Uh, it just came out June 30th. So brand new. Uh, and, and so in this time period, since you finished it, you know, we've seen dozens of Confederate monuments or statues have been removed. Some have been toppled by protesters. Many others have been removed by government officials. And so I wonder what you make of this moment that we are grappling with as a nation with these symbols? It is over, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a strange good feeling, but it's not quite overwhelmingly good, but it's a, you know, but I mean, I'll say like, I, I you know, when you, you read about these things and these history and the deep 
ways in which they tap into stories that people, white people tell themselves about themselves for generations on generations, they do, and they present themselves often as like these unmovable things. It, you kind of get the sense that this isn't going anywhere. So to see, I mean, I didn't think, I thought some would get removed, some wouldn't, but like Robert E. Lee in Richmond, like is, that's pretty, um, that's pretty big deal. So part of it is just a sort of, wow, like this is, I didn't see this coming this I don't think very many people, I don't think anybody saw this much this quickly. And that's good. So my first kind of like thought about it is it's good. Um, overall, like the overall trajectory of it is very good. You know, monuments talk, tap into who has the power to name things and that the naming of things and the describing of things is very much a question of uh, a power. And so insofar as there's this movement of people pushing back against this naming, uh, this kind of description, this descriptive work, it's good, you know, um, and kind of overdue. I mean, frankly, overdue. Um, that's part of what's happening, too, is I think it's almost like this thing has been held and held and held for so long. And I know from like down in North Carolina and other states in the South, you know, people haven't listened. People have not wanted to move these things. People have passed laws to prevent local towns to move them. So it's sort of like this is sort of the rubber band effect of that, I think. My other thought is I hope that it is an opening rather than a closing, it, that, that the movement to address and talk about Confederate monuments and iconography in general, et cetera, is, leads to and continues on into addressing the sort of more present contemporary ways in which racism is at work in our society. And it does not end up being sort of like, okay, we've done this. We've clo- like, we renamed the street, you know, we're done. Which nobody who is an activist working on these monuments thinks that way. But in the public discourse, sometimes I, I wouldn't want that to happen, I guess. And so I hope it, it serves as a sort of continuing process going forward. Like the work isn't done in, in like the Raleigh monument came down very recently. It's not like the work in Raleigh of working for the common good, working for uh, <laughs> dismantling the various ways in which, you know, the new Jim Crow manifest is done. Now that monument is there. So if it serves to work in that way, that's good. And I just hope it doesn't foreclose on that possibility. Yeah. So you're seeing like, the, you know, the, these symbols are, are powerful and important, but it's the first step. It doesn't, removing them doesn't now suddenly remove all systemic racism in Raleigh. So No, no, uh, <laughs> no not at all. And in a weird way for certain, it could almost be a temptation or something where it's like, okay, we've gotten rid of the vestige or the symbols of it. But it's very much like uh, one guy wrote a long, uh, oh man, in the thir- 20s, he talked about it as like the weed a weed and roots. How, if you just, I mean, you know, if you just pluck the weed, leave the roots in place, then it's just going to come back or come back in some other altered form. And that would be bad. So uh, yes, so exact. I mean, you know, to put it bluntly. I love that part. I love this idea. I'm thinking now of like, you know, Robert E. Lee is sticking up like a little dandelion or something, right? And just like, we're, we're cutting off the, the the weed and there's still the roots. I love that idea of the monuments as these little weeds popping up all over, all over the country. Which isn't to say, I'm very much like, I think it's a feedback loop. It's not to say not, you know, keep them up or not remove them or anything like that. It's just to say that has to be sort of both and happening at the same time. 
Yeah, why well, I, I don't know this this you may not have an answer for this, but I'm just kind of curious. You know, we've we've got all these like empty pedestals now. And so as someone who has thought a lot about symbols, like I don't know, you have thoughts on like do we leave them empty or you know, do we put something there? I mean, what would you think as we would wrestle with what these symbols mean? I mean, an empty pedestal is itself a, a interesting powerful symbol. Yeah. Um yeah, I think Duke Chapel did that when someone a couple years ago there was a Robert E. Lee statue in the chapel kind of foyer and someone took his face off and um, uh, they just took him out and they left it empty as, as sort of a standing, you know, confession or something. That is an important question. Um, it's not one that I think, I mean, I don't, I don't mean this to be a cop out. I can't really answer that in general. And I think that is the kind of work that is sort of, there's sort of options to explore, but it's ultimately a sort of matter of discernment in each. I think there's a multitude of answers for that. I know that I want, I would want something to be done intentionally, even if it's leaving it empty, it's leaving it empty on purpose. If that makes any sense. I mean, I know it's striking to me. I don't know if you saw the um, Robert E. Lee statue in Richmond when they um, projected an image of Harriet Tubman on it. And it said, uh, I think the BLM on the horse part of it. And it, and as a quote from her about slavery being the closest thing to hell on earth. I mean, that is the kind I explore that as one kind of creative option. That's not technically removal, but it's almost more disruptive. It's not a permanent solution. I don't think you could constantly have that up, but that, that kind of thing does a sort of, Akido with the symbol itself that is does I think attempt to get at what this the roots underneath the weed you know so I think that's one option another one I, you know there's monuments in history that have invited their own uh, decoration let's say and so monuments that uh, rec- that that move themselves away from being these untouchable you know we speak the truth the Cecil B DeMille type you know we this is the truth once and for all you know. And they become more fluid, recognize their, rather, they recognize their own fluidity. They recognize the way in which they're always changing. There's ways in which I could imagine monuments becoming, um, or, or I don't know, pedestals, whatever, as like centers around which they are decorated on purpose. Like, you know what I mean? Like purposely, ongoingly disrupted by people, which is risky because you don't know what people are going to put on there. But it has been done in various places throughout the world. So that's another option I, I kind of like. Um, because it, it's 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 open to the community around it, like it invites its own messing withness or something. So that's another. I think most should go, frankly, and I don't. <laughs> uh, but but uh, just go. But um, that's another option for sure. Yeah, I know that's one of the things you talk about in your book is this idea of the disruptions. But then and then after that is this idea of building a new narrative. Yes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, flesh that out about about where do we need to go from here. Mm. in in reimagining and retelling a new story. Yes. That's the funny thing about that erasing history charge to me is because it, it, it I mean, I don't want to be too broad, but I'll put it anecdotally, the people I've heard say it to me are people who are pretty well ignorant of huge swaths of the of this country's history, particularly this country's history from the moment of, I mean, I don't know about your high school history, but it was kind of like the civil war ended and then you switched to about, I don't know, the new deal, something happened. And then there was the need for a new deal. Um, <laughs> and then you jumped to the sixties. And so this whole period, it's kind of this, this blank period from 
reconstruction and resistance to the reconstruction all the way up to Hoovervilles. And that's the period in which a lot of this stuff does, isn't, I mean, there's a lot more that history's not filled out. So filling in, like the counter narrative would include publicly people actually knowing a little bit more about their own community's histories and, and where, which it might be painful for a lot of us, but uh, I think Christians have great warrant to face the, the truth, face themselves, face what's going on, come what may. But do that and, and getting a sense of that. So I think that's one thing that needs to be done is a sort of a counter narrative that really does pay attention to and reckons with the variety of ways in which this country has been built on a lot of uh, violence. I mean, lately in the last five years, with uh, uh, five, 10 years, lynching has become more kind of widely nationally known, but uh, that's not been the case in our country's history. Angela Sims's book, Lynched, is really good on this theology and lynching. She kind of does an oral histories of that. And it was a sort of this untold chapters of, of, of the country. So that'd be one. I think, I think for Christians, I think the goal is to sort of provide a counter theological narrative about what's going on. Then that is provided in these Confederate monuments. So insofar as the monuments hold up whiteness as uh, uh, most beautiful and closest to God, which they do, whether we realize it or not, Christians should be ready to provide a counter aesthetic a counter vision of the beautiful that comes from a vision of God who is not white. And I don't mean that in a some melanin way, but you know, uh, Christ, Christ himself being the one who is the criterion by which we judge uh, what is most true and most beautiful and most good. Yeah. You know, of course you, you mentioned also about the idea of not knowing history and not to, not to taste it, chase too much of a tangent, but you know, some of these monuments are just are historically inaccurate. Uh, so yeah. We actually have one in, my hometown where I live in Jefferson City, Missouri, we have one Confederate monument and I've, I've written about it in the local paper recently about why it should go. And, it, and it, it, it's clearly not even this charge of erasing history because the monument itself is historically inaccurate. Yeah. And so, you know, so the Confederates were coming to take over the state capitol and realized that they were outnumbered. So they ran. And the monument, the monument is honoring the Confederate general for, quote, deciding not to attack. <laughs> Which on its face is like the dumbest monument. That's one way to put it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he decided to retreat. Yeah, but it's like, well, I mean, even if even if it was true, it's like, why would you honor someone for for deciding not to attack as opposed to honoring the forces you know that protected the city? And so you know, it's just it's this big ugly rock of a plaque on it. But it's 1933, United of the Confederacy, right? We didn't have a good battle, so this is all we could do is get this dumb rock. And so, you know, they're not even historically accurate often, which I think is, is also kind of interesting. Yes. In thinking about some of that. Yes. A great new book. I, I, I mean, I do this in my book as well, but um, I, I, this book was published as well after this has all happened very recently, but it's called The False Cause by this guy, Adam Doomby, I believe it. And he talks about all the ways in which all these monuments variously are his, quite historically inaccurate, oftentimes in, in, in particulars, but then in the broad sort of lost cause narrative in general is a complete false narrative about history in the past. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you were raised uh, when I went to high school in the South. I mean, that was the lost cause was I, I've since realized was the implicit teaching about the war between the states. I'm using air quotes or the war of more of aggression sometimes, uh, which said something like, you know, the South didn't, it wasn't about slavery. It was about states rights. We only lost because of superior numbers from the North. The generals were the best generals in the history of the world. And, you know, Lee and Stonewall against slavery anyway, and they would have freed them anyway, et cetera, et cetera. 
And some of that's sort of half true. Some of that's completely not true. Uh, but the point is it comes together to create a sort of false narrative about history uh, that's just kind of maddening then to hear somebody say, this is erasing history. It's like, you know, these things themselves erase history. And the more late they get, so 1933, did you say? Yes, that's right. The more late they get, you see they get more... Um, I talk about in the book, there's a sort of taxonomy you can do with that you should do with Confederate monuments that the earlier they perform differently at different stages in history and earlier ones are placed typically in cemeteries or battlefields and they're a little more muted. Um, they're not innocent, but they don't perform in the same way. But as you get later, they are more and more, more verbose in this sort of narration. And by the time you get to the thirties and then like the fifties and sixties, I mean, there's books on these things that, are very self-consciously trying to say something about a historical event that turns out usually is not uh, historically there at all. One of the other things you mentioned was talking about, you know, communities knowing their history, you know, with lynchings, which is something, you know, thinking about memorials has been interesting the last few years with uh, particularly the uh, EJI has been kind of encouraging not only collecting of the soil, but then also putting up markers and memorials which themselves can be quite contested. I mean, the Emmett Till Memorial has been shot up numerous times. Mm. It was a lynching memorial put in Kansas City, Missouri, a little over a year ago, and it was recently torn down and thrown off a cliff. You know, so I mean, you know, there's clearly there's some contesting to these stories that are happening. But you also mentioned the importance of, of Christians talking about their history. And that was something I wanted to ask you about, because that's also been something we're seeing in the news quite a bit right now, just a, a couple of examples. So there's some black Southern Baptists have been urging Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky to rename buildings that are named for their four founders, all who were slaveholders. A couple of them were part of the Confederacy. You have Baylor University just announced the they're acknowledging their ties to slavery in the Confederacy and starting a process of studying, you know, what does that mean on their campus? They have a, a statue of Baylor who was a slaveholder, and they have buildings named after individuals with ties to slavery in the Confederacy. And so, you know, this is something that a, a lot of Christian schools and churches have these types of histories that we haven't talked about them. Yeah. And so I wonder what kind of advice you would give to Christians, particularly leaders at churches and institutions of, of how do they wrestle with this heritage? Yes, it's a, yeah, uh, they should do it. That's my first bit of advice. <laughs> um, and I suppose we're talking to, I mean, you know, I, I know you just probably, you know, more or less white Christians, white institutions. And so that's who I can speak to and feel comfortable speaking to, obviously. Um, so I think it's important to be, to, to, I mean, this sounds flippant, but I have a few things I have to think. But one is telling the truth. I mean, I think especially in our time right now, not just with this debate or conversation or whatever, but this reckoning, but in general, I mean, it's important for Christians to be people who try to tell the truth, to be honest with who they are and where they've been. That can be hard to face reality, to bear reality. As uh, I heard Stanley Hauerwas quote T.S. Eliot talk, say that, James Baldwin says the exact same thing. Bearing reality is very tough and a lot of hum most humans can't barely stand it. And so we retreat into these sort of narratives to protect ourselves from ourselves. And so one thing I think Christians should advice is to do it and to be honest and to be willing to do it. I think in, in so doing, I think we should be ready 
I think is why people probably resist it or institutions resist it. I mean, the ironclad law of institutions is to, you know, keep itself going. And there's a sense in which you never know what you're going to find down there. It won't start digging stuff up. And so. Cause usually when this, these searches are done, they find it's worse than they thought. Precisely. And so it's, yeah, exactly. And so um, I think there's a sense in which there's going to be to be truthfulness and, and, and courage, frankly, to, to do that, uh, a willingness to do that and to recognize or to know beforehand that it's not just going to be some names on buildings. I mean, if you're really going to go at this, then it's going to be involved more than just, I took a name off a building. Yay. Like, I mean, that's, again, it's not bad, but it, it can't, if that's the end goal, then that's a branding exercise. It's purely performative or symbolic in the pejorative sense. And that's not going to be what we need. But if it's an opening to further work, then that's good. For Christians in particular, I mean, what, when you read like, uh, Shanika Walker Barnes has a great new book on, uh, I bring the voices of my people, but she taps into a longer tradition of, Willie Jennings talks about this. James Cohn's talk about this. Language of reconciliation needs to be, for white Christians, stricken for a bit, if not for a long time. Because white Christians tend to go there very quickly when these sorts of, uh, if you really do do this first thing and try to face and have this conversation, the second thing you're going to do is, right, how are we going to get to reconciliation? Are we ready to forgive us? You know, whatever. And that kind of language is meant to, at least it, serves to forestall the kinds of hard conversations, the hard facings, reckonings, uh, justice that has to precede any actual reconciliation. I mean, it's the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. It's not just the Reconciliation Committee. So um, uh, uh, so I think the, my advice for Christians, if they were going to do this, white Christians, would be to kind of stop with reconciliation talk, not because it's inherently wrong, but because it's so misused in these sorts of conversations and let that come over time if it comes as a kind of grace, but rather focus on the work of truth and honesty and justice in our time and in our place. Avoid like a sort of cheap grace, you know, and go for a more substantive thing. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I do think that one of the first steps, you know, since you asked me, we'll, we'll flip the mic here <laughs> is to, uh, we have to tell the history because, you know, I have heard from these institutions that they, it, they knew they had ties to slavery and it's always worse than they thought. Mm. And uh, actually uh, the church that I attend, we did this last fall related to the 400th anniversary of black enslavement in the United States with a, a community service and actually did the research on our founders. Hmm. And I, I was the one that presented that part of the service. And when I, I knew it, I mean, I, that's the reason why I looked, I, the reason I looked for them was I knew that some of them were, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they were, they, they were slaveholders were a slave state. Right. Uh, and, but I, and people afterwards were asking me like, well, how did you know this? Like, you know, I, I wouldn't even have thought to look and, uh, and, and four of the first seven were slaveholders. But when I announced that from the pulpit, I mean, there were audible gasps. People were stunned. People who have, you know, been in this church for decades, much longer than I have. And, and so I, th that, I think that, that that's just telling the story, the truth of our own history, as you, as you were talking about, a, you know, community, whether it's a, a community, talking about lynchings, or whether it's a, a, you know, Christian church or institution, is such an important step to know that this is in our DNA. Yeah. And it's like, if, if we could be that wrong then, hmm. you know, what does that tell us about the way we're acting today that, hmm. you know, perhaps, perhaps it's not so easy to be, be theologically right. 
Hmm. Yeah, what other issues might we condemn slavery? Of course, you know, it would never be like that. But on some other issues, we are manifesting the exact same logics towards other groups of people, let's say. Yeah, uh, it, it lets it not be something that happened to these other people somewhere else over there. You know, it's 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 very much us. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's a great, and, and I think it's funny because you can find, you never know. I had a friend who was involved with a um, church in Washington, D.C. that had this story of themselves as a very famously historically welcoming church for black folks. And when they did the historical research, assuming they would find confirmation of it, it turned out all that was more or less a historical fabrication. I don't remember the full details of why and how that worked, but it wasn't, it wasn't true. Um, and so, and so again, I think that's part of why some of us, some people don't want to go there because of what it, it's hard. I mean, you know, it's standard trauma work. I mean, you just don't want to do it or you're afraid of what you're going to see. So I love, one of my favorite quotes, I don't quote Augustine that often, but one of my favorite lines from his confessions is, uh, you Lord took me back from behind my own back where I had placed myself because I didn't want to look upon myself. And he thinks of God bringing himself back from behind himself and making him look at himself as a process of his conversion, which is, you know, Ford could have written that. Um, <laughs> but I think we have a way of doing that. We kind of have a way of hiding ourselves from ourselves individually, but also communally in churches, no less than universities or whatever. And so, I mean, a huge thing would be to just bring ourselves out from behind ourselves, which is going to involve conversations with other folks in our communities as well. Especially if you're in a town where you go to First Baptist X and there's a, another First Baptist X. Or in our case, it's the Second Baptist. And right. so those, they have that tied history, right? That's tied to slavery. You should probably be talking to that other church. I know we've covered a lot of ground and, and we've kind of talked a little bit, but I, I wonder if we could maybe end on a little bit more of a forward looking. So what do, what do you... What do you hope is next? I mean, we're doing some of the reckoning, and obviously, I think there's a lot more, as you've said, particularly on thinking about these theologically, uh, these Confederate monuments and so forth. Uh, but what would you hope that we could do, kind of as a as a next step, as we're having this kind of national conversation about these monuments, specifically about the monuments? Like, what 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 would you like to see us go deeper on that? Yeah, that is one of the places where I'm like, well, who's the we? Who are we talking about? Um, I, I think. Um, Nationally, I mean, as far as you can talk about that kind of thing, um, I would want the conversations about monuments and Confederate iconography, et cetera, to continue to open on to the sorts of questions and policy changes, et cetera, that are being asked for, pushed for, demanded by people who are doing kind of uh, activism work right now. So like, you know, River, William Barber talks about like, a first, second, first and a second and a third reconstruction. And we're in the midst of a third reconstruction era. And in that first and second period of reconstruction, which, you know, we arrived at the Civil War and then Civil Rights era, uh, there was reaction against it and pushback against it. And so what I'd want would be, if we are in the midst of a third reconstruction, that there was the desire to move into uh, addressing Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow in and through these sorts of conversations that are inspired by this Confederate imagery. For Christians, I would want that to be a part of that. And I think Christians should be a part of that work. I also think Christians, white Christians should be um, 
involved in the kind of lament or mourning work that is required, I think, to move forward, both as as people of faith, but then also uh, as sort of like signposts for um, the society um, at large. So a friend of mine here posted um, Bible studies at Confederate monuments uh, that before the one that was taken down uh, in Raleigh. And, um, and it was a place in which it would, they were used as sort of transitional objects to tell, to do this kind of work. But the, the use of the monument became a kind of center around which it organized that kind of energy. And I think Christians should be the kind of people who are thinking creatively, trying to do experiments of that sort to bring healing and justice to our communities. That would be my hope that however they're used up or down, that they are used in those sorts of ways for redemptive purposes, uh, including the removals. So that would be my kind of hope um, going forward and not that it would be sort of like, you know, we did it, you know, everybody, we did it. Congratulations. And uh, you move forward. That would be, that would be bad. (laughs) Again, I say, Well, I love that imagery. I think that's a great note for us to kind of wrap up on. I love that idea of uh, reclaiming the space, reclaiming the stories, the narratives with a a kind of a subversive Bible study at a Confederate monument. I mean, you know, I I love that that imagery of of taking this this profane act and reclaiming kind of sacred land to tell a new story. And I, I think that that's a hopeful message that you're helping us to think about. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Ryan, so much for your time, for being uh, on the program. And we'll encourage people to check out your book. They can pretty much find it anywhere books are sold. And so it's available now everywhere. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist About an Adjective. As a reminder, you can find Ryan's book, Cut in Stone, Confederate Monuments and Theological Disruption, wherever you buy books, whether that be Amazon, or you can go to BaylorPress.com and find it right there from Baylor University Press. As always, you'll find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and our monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a deal for you. Half off for one year, just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.